It's Megacon, the largest comic book, anime, gaming, and multimedia event in the southeastern U.S. returns. Megacon from March 21st through the 23rd, 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center in Magical Orlando, Florida. Confirmed comic book guests include Frank Bruner, Neil Adams, Bill Sinkevic, Mark Wade, Ron Mars, Greg Land, Michael Golden, Dennis Calero, George Perez, Brandon Peterson, Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, Collie Hamner, Carl Story, Renee Winterstater, Billy Tucci, and Brian Polito. Just added Nick Bradshaw, Adam Kubert, Dan Jurgens, Mike Miller, Kevin Eastman, Joshua Ortega, Digger, Bart Sears, Ethan Van Skyver, Mike McCone, Frank Thierry, Mike Mayhew, and Chuck Dixon. Confirmed media guests include stars from AMC's The Walking Dead, Torchwood, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Smallville, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Star Trek, and many, many, many more. Plus I, Scott Gardner, will be there representing the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Tickets are available online now at www.megaconvention.com. Children 10 and under are free with paid adult ticket. That's Megacon 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center, Magical Orlando, Florida, March 21st through the 23rd. For information, contact info at megaconvention.com or visit www megaconvention.com That's Megacon 2014 Be there And now it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello everyone, and welcome once again to the Earth Destruction Directive Podcast. As always, I am your host, Luke Giaconetti, and I want to welcome you back once again to the show, where we talk about all of your favorite Japanese giant monsters, and some you might not be so familiar with. Hope everyone enjoyed our last two shows, actually. Well, the first was uh, the previous regular episode, where we talked about Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad, the Deke adaptation of the Subaraya show, Gridman, and then of course we had our uh, Gaiden Christmas special where we took a look at the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers episode, I'm Dreaming of a White Ranger. I hope you've enjoyed those. Hope everyone had a happy and safe holiday season, and hope that your 2014 is off to a good start. We've got a good show for you today. We're going to be taking a look at another Heisei film. We're going to look at 1992's Godzilla vs. Mothra, the return of the stalwart co-star Mothra to the Godzilla series after an absence of quite a while. We also have the next issue of the Marvel Comics uh, Shogun Warriors series, taking a look at issue number seven of that series. And of course, we'll have some emails in there as well. So I'm going to take a real quick break, play a podcast promo, and when we come back, we'll get on with the show. 
This is the Old Father Odin, and you should be listening to Radio Free Asgard. No, no, that's just not going to work. Let's try this again. This is the evil Loki, and if you hate Thor as much as I do, you should be... All right, let's just try one more thing. Jane Foster here, and you should be... Ah, risen. All right, let's just keep this simple. Hello, everybody. My name is Tom Harris, and I do a podcast called Radio Free Asgard, which airs every Thursday over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. We cover the adventures of Thor, Hercules, and more from ancient times all the way up into the present day. We read old comics and make fun of them. I do ridiculous voices and generally make an ass of myself. So if that sounds fun to you, you should come join us, the only Thor podcast hosted by a true descendant of Odin, over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. And we'll see you there. All right, we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. This episode, we're going to be taking a look at the film Godzilla vs. Mothra, the fourth film of the Heisei series, and as the title suggests, it has the return of Mothra, but let's get into it. Godzilla vs. Mothra was released in Japan on December 12, 1992. The director was Takeo Okawara, the screenwriter was Kazuki Amori. Special effects were by Koichi Kawakita, music was by Akira Ifukube, and the producers were Tomoyuki Tanaka and Shogo Tomiyami. Our story begins with a meteorite crashing into the Earth, awakening Godzilla from his undersea slumber after his defeat against Mecha King Ghidorah the year before. In addition, we see that the gigantic egg of Mothra is unearthed on Infant Island in the South Pacific. The Japanese Environmental Planning Board, basically the Japanese equivalent of the American EPA, is not aware of this, however, and sends an expedition to Infant Island to observe the damage caused by the storms in the wake of the meteor crash. The team is made up of Takuya, a treasure hunter, Masako, his ex-wife, who works for the EPB, and Kenji Ando, a representative of the Marutomo Corporation, who has interests on the island. There, our heroes find not only the giant egg, but two tiny women, the Cosmos. The Cosmos helpfully fill in the backstory. Their society had once dominated the Earth, but when they created machines to control the weather, the Earth itself spat forth the beast Batra, a, quote, black Mothra who ravaged their civilization. Only through the arrival of their monster god Mothra was Batra defeated, but the damage had been done. The Cosmos society was destroyed, and all of their technology with it. Ando offers to have the egg move to Japan, where it can be better protected. The Cosmos agree, and the egg is soon fitted onto a large raft and ferried off. As the egg makes its journey, Batra rouses from his arctic resting place, stirred by both the meteor's impact and the moving of the egg. The vicious, armored caterpillar makes a beeline for Japan, causing chaos and destruction before retreating underground. The egg fairy, meanwhile, is intercepted by Godzilla, which causes the egg to hatch, revealing the larval Mothra. The monster party is soon complete with the arrival at sea of Batra, who knocks aside Mothra and tangles with Godzilla himself. The two monsters clash violently on the sea floor, which causes an undersea volcano to erupt, swallowing them whole. Mothra, no longer interested in Japan, simply returns home. Ando panics, not wanting to return empty-handed, and kidnaps the Cosmos from the boat, presenting them to his boss, Mr. Tomokane, who plans to use them as a promotional effort for the firm. The Cosmos do the obvious thing, 
and start singing their prayers to their god, so Mothra turns around and comes back to Japan. Takuya, still trying to make some money off of this whole thing, kidnaps the cosmos from the kidnappers, but intends to sell them off to the highest bidder. Masako is able to convince him of how spectacularly bad an idea this is, and the girls are reunited with Mothra, right before the JSDF opens fire on the larva. Injured, Mothra spins a cocoon over the Diet building, where he eventually emerges in full-on moth, or imago, form. Things seem to be going okay, all told, until a volcanic eruption at Mount Fuji releases Godzilla, having traveled through the magma flow. Batra then also reappears, and similarly changes into his imago form. All three of the monsters converge on Yokohama, where the final battle will take place. Uh, after the success of 1991's uh, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, as heard on episode 18 of this very podcast, Toho continued their trend of reintroducing modern versions of older monsters with this film. Initial development had begun on a film which was going to be titled Godzilla vs. Gigamoth, which would apparently have featured the King of the Monsters tangling with a different winged insect in addition to Mothra. Things didn't exactly come together for that film, but Toho really wanted to have Godzilla tangle with Mothra, Mothra being one of the far and away most popular monsters from the Showa era. So the designs for Gigamoth would be incorporated into the character of Batra, a new, more dangerous-looking insect monster. Taken in terms of revenue, Godzilla vs. Mothra is the most successful Japanese Godzilla film of all time. Of course, correcting for inflation, the American one uh, still is the highest grossing of all of them. In one sense, it's not really surprising. The series had made a big splash, bringing back King Ghidorah, again a very popular foe, a year earlier. And so Toho was bringing back an even more popular character with Mothra. The matchup also has echoes to the still very popular Mothra vs. Godzilla, known here in the States, of course, as Godzilla vs. The Thing, back from 1964. That film had been re-released all right, around 1980-1981 in Japan, and it did big box office just as a re-release, so clearly Mothra was the right choice for Toho to bring back. It's also worth noting that despite Batra being the only new monster in this film, he doesn't figure hardly at all into the promotion of the film. He's not on the poster. He was in the trailers, but the images you see from this film and the title are Godzilla and Mothra, and that's it. Mothra even in larva and uh, moth form. Clearly, obviously this worked for Toho, and they reaped a lot of money and rewards from it. So, The film itself, though, it's pretty uneven. Kind of a mixed bag, quality-wise, in pretty much all aspects. Which one could say is true of all the Heisai films. Watching this one for the first time in a while, it really kind of stood out to me. The story borrows very heavily from both the original 1961 film Mothra, as well as the 64 Mothra vs. Godzilla. The, you know, it takes elements from both of them and kind of throws them together. I've always espoused that if you want to rip something off, rip off something good. But, you know, after the creative way that they did the new King Ghidorah in the previous film, this one ends up feeling more like a rehash than anything else. Godzilla, despite being the, the first build star, really doesn't have much to do. He dutifully shows up where the plot needs him to be and fights whichever monsters he encounters. You know, a fair day's work for Godzilla. Mothra, he's been given a big power boost, and interesting here in the dub he's specifically called a he, in later dubs Mothra would be called a she, 
they're kind of back and forth on this. Eh, I don't know. I don't know which I prefer. Monsters, to me, should be fairly sexless. So, you can adjust your pronouns as you see fit, I guess. But anyway, Mothra has been given uh, a big power boost. Which kind of odd, considering that Mothra was never one of the more powerful monsters back in the Showa era. Now he can shoot a beam from his antenna, and his poison scales, they conduct electricity. So he can drop the scales, or poison powder, whatever you want to call it, shoot it with the beam, and then it conducts it through it. It, it seems a bit much, like I said. I mean, it does kind of... It makes him more of a threat to Godzilla, but, you know, it really gets away kind of from the character of Mothra that we knew from the Showa films. The best scene that Mothra has, to me, is as a larva when he's driving right through Tokyo to rescue the cosmos. This, and this elf, this best scene that he has, is to call back to 1961. That's a scene right out of the original, so. Batra, though, he's a worthy new adversary. He's got both his eye beams and a horn beam as a larva, uh, and a big pincer uh, on his tail. As an imago, he retains his eye beams, and generally, he's got a really great evil Mothra look. I think if you're going to do a, quote, black Mothra, then this is the way to do it. Again, he's shuffled around, though, as he's needed, and not given a whole lot to do. Even for a monster, his motivation is very basic. Kill Mothra, and then later, kill Godzilla. Unfortunately, the humans in this film, not really worth mentioning. The Cosmos are about the only ones who really stand out, and they play the same role they typically play. They are the exposition to the audience, they explain what's going on, they help kind of move the film along from scene to scene, and then, when necessary, they're a plot device that gets captured or shuffled from place to place. Again, once more, a throwback to the older films. But since that's what those characters' purpose was, that's okay for the Cosmos. The effects, to me, they're below the standards that were set in the three previous Heisei films, Return of Godzilla, Godzilla vs. Biolanti, and Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, which I thought all had superlative effects. The rod-controlled uh, puppet head of Godzilla, which honestly looked great in the last couple of films, looks very stiff here, and it suffers a lot. The latex skin on the neck bends and folds, and it never looks like skin. It always looks like uh, latex. It completely shatters the illusion. Not helping are the fact that the eyes on the puppet head are very doll-like. They don't have any life behind them, so they always look kind of fake, especially on my DVD release. I don't know if this was better on my old VHS bootleg or not. I don't have it anymore to compare it, but on DVD it looks really doll-like. The flying puppets of Batra and Mothra, unfortunately, again, really unconvincing. Their lower legs are extremely static. They, they always look like a model. They never move. Even the original Mothra flying puppet had some little bit of motion in the legs, and so it looked a little bit more realistic. They also suffer from what a lot of fans complain about, which is sl slow wing syndrome. When the Imago puppets are shot together, their wings move pretty well. Uh, as far as how fast they flap. But when they're on screen with Godzilla, you've got to overcrank the camera because of the Godzilla suit. So when you bring that back to normal speed, it means that the wings flap super slowly, and it doesn't look very convincing. You know, monster wings are one of those oddball things in general, and here they kind of it almost calls attention to it, uh, how slow they move. This is, I strongly suspect, why Toho would move to incorporating CGI in the Millennium films for Mothra's wings. 
just to make them move smoother and faster and not have to worry about interacting them with uh, the other elements of the shot. There's some good stuff in there, though, I gotta admit. The Godzilla suit itself is fantastic. It's an update from the muscular, really bulky suit last time, and it looks really nice. Uh, Godzilla 92 is a fairly common rendition to see in, in toys and models, and it's plain to see why. It's a nice evolution of the Heisei design, and it really looks good on screen. And, and for the general part, the suit itself is fine. It, the problem I have with Godzilla, like I said, stems more from the rod-controlled head than anything else. Both of the larva puppets look real nice. Mothra's a very basic design, and that puppet's usually done well. Batra is new, and he looks very fierce. I really like Batra. He's uh, he's given a, a more upright stance than Mothra. Like I said, looks real menacing with his big horns and the armor plates on him and the tail. He really looks like he could tangle with Godzilla. So when the larva... Batra and Godzilla fight on the seafloor, it's convincing because we believe that Batra can stand up to Godzilla, which is something that we never really got from the larva uh, version of Mothra, and which, to be fair, is typically addressed in the story that uh, that the larva form is no match for Godzilla, except when there's the two of them at the end of Mothra versus Godzilla, of course. Mothra looks much the same as he did in the old days. The wings have a different pattern on them. They're still very bright and colorful. Still very sharp. I mean, the Mothra puppet, I think, and I think the Mothra character in general, endures partially because it's got such a great look. You know, with the big op art wings, uh, this really bright, colorful, taking advantage of the the usually very saturated colors in a Toho film. And here, with the finale taking place at night, and you've got two dark characters with Godzilla and Batra, you get these bright wings against the dark uh, sky. It really looks very nice, very nicely done. I said, it's always been kind of a basic design. This film is one of the best instances of that design in the entire uh, Toho Daikaiju uh, film series. One thing I don't think anyone's going to disagree with, the movie's major strong suit, is the score by Akira Ufakube. And he mixes classic Godzilla themes with some readily identifiable cues for Mothra. And it does this with a sort of... The term I like to use is is majesty. And, And I think that's kind of aggrandizing, but I think if you're a connoisseur of Ufakube's scores, you understand what I mean by that. Everything sounds very important and very epic. Uh, it, it's it's kind of a universal trend in his work, especially on uh, Daikaiju films, and it comes out very nicely here. Batra's theme is a new addition, very welcome. It really kind of fits the character again, kind of hinting at his power and his status as the evil version of Mothra. And um, actually, one of the reworked um, pieces of music is the the march that the JSDF gets from War of the Gargantuas. It returns here for a military scene. Very welcome little piece of music. Uh, that was a nice bit back when it was used in the 60s, and it fits again here. Never let it be said that Toho wasn't going <laughs> to borrow and steal from themselves if they could. It works very nicely here. In in the film itself, it might be patchwork, and but that doesn't mean that the, the soundtrack doesn't stand out. To me, it's one of Ifakube's best, and there's a really nice so-called perfect collection of it that you can find on import or if you're you know savvy and look online you could probably find it uh, there's a few other uh, notes 
the title. In Japan, this was uh, entitled Godzilla vs. Mothra, keeping in line with the trend of the Heisei films to be Godzilla vs. whomever. When this was brought over to the United States on DVD, the title was changed to Godzilla and Mothra, then subtitled The Battle for Earth. I prefer Godzilla versus Mothra, but I understand why they did that. Godzilla and Mothra, it kind of fits with the uh, portrayal of, of Mothra in the film. You know, and it doesn't make Godzilla as overtly a kind of third-party evil force like he is in the film. So I can see why they did it. I'll never refer to it <laughs> as Godzilla and Mothra, except when specifically saying the English title is Godzilla and Mothra. This film is called Godzilla vs. Mothra. There's a, when Batra is out at sea coming to uh, Japan, there's an air attack on him by the JSDF. This is a reference to the original Mothra. And it's interesting, the effects tank gets a lot of use this time out. But again, keeping with the uneven nature of the special effects, it doesn't look all that good. I don't know if it's because of the backdrop or the, the relative stillness of the water. The effects tank just doesn't doesn't do it for me this time out and you know they had done some really good moody work in the water in Godzilla vs. Biolanti for the scenes at Lake Ashino and here it, it, I don't know I guess because maybe that was at night and this is very much in the middle of the day just the difference in color maybe contributes to it overall I, I didn't care for a lot of those scenes as far as the effects I mean story-wise they're fine Ando's boss Mr. Uh, Tonakone he reminds me a lot of Mr. Torahada from Godzilla 64, who was, of course, the businessman obsessed with profits and wanted to exploit the giant egg and then the, the cosmos. And, you know, it's kind of a stock character in, in this sort of film, but it all comes back to Torahada from Godzilla 64. At one point, Tonakone is watching the monsters destroy the city, and he yells, destroy the city! I'll build it back bigger! And, and you know, this is the kind of character, okay, greedy businessman... You expect him to get his, right? Well, he never does. He never gets his comeuppance in this film. And I think that's a major point that's lost. What a missed opportunity to have this guy be crushed uh, when Batra knocks down a building or Godzilla swipes a building casually with his tail or something. In, in the original film, Torahada and his partner are literally fighting over money when the building they're in collapses on them and kills them. It was a, a very... I mean, obviously a, a very kind of on-the-nose story point, but it seems like an omission, like a really kind of glaring omission to leave that out here. It seems like it would have been the obvious step. And I understand we don't always do what's obvious, but sometimes the obvious choice is the right choice. I didn't really talk about it much in the summary, but there is kind of an environmental theme in this film. Unfortunately, it really feels kind of tacked on, and it's not really well developed. I'm, I'm not clear how a meteor from outer space hitting Earth and then causing these environmental problems is a problem with pollution here on Earth. Did the pollution cause the meteor? That doesn't make any sense to me. I think this was kind of added, again, eh, I don't know. Probably because it was something that was used pretty well in the 70s, and, you know, uh, the idea of uh, this, this, this green movement was very strong in the early 90s. So, I mean, it, it's, I take it as a relic of its time more than anything else. It doesn't really add much to the plot. And then at the end, again, Mothra flies off at the end to go stop another meteor from hitting the Earth. What does that have to do with pollution on the Earth? It's never explained, you know. It's never really fleshed out to any sort of satisfaction. 
speaking of the cosmos, their special effects very similar to how it was done in the Showa period with double exposures and uh, forced perspective and them on a on a, a set with everything oversized. And I don't have I don't have any problem with this. In 1992, how else would you have done it before the development of you know modern uh, affordable CGI? How else do you do two tiny women? You know, you do these same old camera tricks and uh, perspective filming that you did in in the 60s and 70s. And so I don't have a problem with it at all. It's very quaint to see that still being used in the 90s. And of course, I say that in a film that features men and puppets in monster suits fighting each other as if that's not quaint. You know, that's part of the whole charm of the genre, I think, is that the, the technology has evolved but not really changed too much. Mickey Segusa, who of course uh, was our psychic character from Godzilla vs. Biolanti and Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, has a very minor role in this film, keeping her around mostly to remind the audience, hey, remember Mickey Segusa? She's here. Unfortunately, she gets she gets no introduction, and there is no explanation given whatsoever of her powers. There's a scene where uh, they are driving through Tokyo looking for the cosmos, and Mickey is looking for them with her psychic powers. There is no reference whatsoever given to how she is able to sense where they are. We just kind of take it on faith uh, if we haven't seen the previous films. Toho is simply assuming that we know who the character is. Which, at this point, in Japan, that probably was a safe bet here in the States when the majority of folks are going to be seeing this possibly on cable or DVD and may not have watched the ones before it. That's, That's a little bit of a weak point. But again, she plays such a minor role. She's really only there for that one scene to help them find the cosmos. And they could have done it in a different way if they didn't want to introduce Mickey. But clearly she was someone they wanted to keep around. And she plays a more prominent role in the later films in the Heisei uh, era. One thing that's interesting is that besides borrowing liberally from the Showa Mothra films, this film steals from Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. Uh, one part in the final three-way showdown, Batra drops a building on Godzilla, exactly the same way that Mecha King Ghidorah blasted the building to topple it on Godzilla in the previous film. And then the finale, if you'll recall, the finale of Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah had Mecha King Ghidorah picking Godzilla up and dumping him out at sea. Well, Mothra and Batra do the exact same thing here. They both grab prone Godzilla and carry him off, very stiffly, I might add, and drop him out at sea. And then Mothra puts a spell on him to keep him sealed, which lasts, you know, all of a year until the next film. But just odd to see it uh, steal so liberally from the film right before it. I mean, major, major memorable set uh, pieces are, are lifted. So that just seemed like an odd choice. This was, besides a financial boon for Toho, a very successful relaunch of the Mothra character. Mothra would go on... Now, Mothra had not appeared since Destroy All Monsters in 1968, except for brief snippets of stock footage. And then, so, from 1968 to 1992, made no appearances. From 1992 to the present, uh, or excuse me, 1992, over the next 12 years till 2004... Mothra appeared seven times, including uh, a three-film series of her own, 
which was the, the Heisei Mothra trilogy known as Rebirth of Mothra in some circles. And so clearly this reintroduction of Mothra was a, a good move by Toho, allowed them to exploit this character further, not only in the Godzilla series, but also on her own and uh, kind of create an all, little offshoot of films there. So bringing back Mothra was obviously the right thing to do. Just seems like like the film was almost phoned in a little bit beyond the, hey, Mothra's back. You know, they, they didn't go as all out on the story like they did on King Ghidorah. Overall, uh, it's a perfectly fine entry in the series. It's enjoyable to watch. A lot of action. It starts out with a very fast pace and has a fantastic soundtrack. But really, looking at looking at it in context, easy for me to say, it's not nearly as good as the films which came before it. And unfortunately, begins some disturbing trends for the rest of the Heisei films, which we will get to in future episodes. Fans of Mothra will really enjoy this film. He's the main focus. It's a big, colorful romp. Should keep you engaged and entertained. And honestly, that's what I want most of the time for my giant monster movies. But not one of the superlative efforts. Not as good as the three previous films before it. But really worth checking out. And you're lucky you want to check it out. This film is available in the U.S. You can watch it for free on Crackle.com. Uh, as I have said on numerous cases, of course, Crackle.com does have little commercial breaks in it, but it is free. It's just ad-supported. It is, I think you can still get it on DVD. It was available by um, Sony as a double feature with Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah in dubbed form. No special features whatsoever, but if you just want to watch the movie, it's a good double feature to pick up. And of course, if you're going to buy that from Amazon, go to 2TrueFreaks.com and use our Amazon.com link to pick that up. It's kind of an important film because of the bringing back of Mothra, and Batra is a fan favorite character. But if I'm just picking a Godzilla movie to watch just for fun, it's rare that I'm going to reach for Godzilla versus Mothra. So, yeah, kind of middle of the road. So, anyway, that's all I've got to say about Godzilla versus Mothra. What do you think? Have you folks seen it? Um, have you caught it on sci-fi? I used to be on sci-fi fairly often. Uh, why don't you write me in? Let me know what you think. Uh, Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com. We can talk about Godzilla vs. Mothra a little bit. I am going to take a quick break. going to plug a promo in here, and then we will be back on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a Star Shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun. Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge evil. The Shoguns. They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun Warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. Okay, we're back on Earth Destruction Directive. Now we're going to take a look at Marvel Comics Group Shogun Warriors number 7. Shogun Warriors number 7 was cover dated of August 1979, released on or around May 1st, 1979. 
And that information, of course, comes from Mike's Amazing World of Comics. And our cover features a nice forced perspective shot of the camera looking up from the feet of the towering form of Rydeen as a series of onlookers point in a gas terror at the giant Shogun warrior. Uh, our title is The Many Heads of Cerberus, and our writer is Doug Mench, penciler Herb Trimpey, inker Mike Esposito, letterer John Costanza, colorist Carl Gafford, editor Alan Milgram. Landing at LAX, Richard Carson is met by his friend and fellow stunt professional Dina, who, well, happy to see her friend, is peeved at his sudden re-emergence after being gone for weeks. Meanwhile, in Madagascar, Ilongo Savage is reunited with his research team, including the lovely research assistant Judith, whom he vaguely tells about the summoning pendant given to him by Dr. Tambora at the end of the last issue. Elsewhere, Genji Odashu finally lands her prototype plane that she was flying when she was taken by the followers of the light to be a Shogun pilot, and is immediately mobbed by the press. She escapes with the help of her friend Kosei, who is there as a representative of the airline. He tells her that she'll be facing a board of inquiry for her disappearance, but Genji merely brushes it off. When asked about her pendant, she tells Kosai that it is a key to wonder, to excitement, and leaves it at that. And finally, back at the Shogun Sanctuary, Dr. Tambora and his crew are tracking a hulking vessel off the west coast of the United States, but the doctor decides not to alert the Shoguns until they know more. All subplots accounted for, copyright Sean Engel, 2011, we shift back to the home of Richard Carson in the hills outside of Los Angeles. Over dinner and a bottle of wine, Carson tells Dina about his adventures as a Shogun pilot and explains how the summoning pendant works. A technological marvel, when activated, it allows the pilot to see a projection of their Shogun, which will materialize on that spot. Somehow. Dina is amused by the whole thing, but tells Carson that they have to work in the morning, doing a big motorcycle stunt jump for a film. On the set the next day, Carson and Dina are preparing the stunt when the vessel that Dr. Tambora and company were tracking makes landfall on the California coastline. The bulky carrier-type vessel then launches five smaller attack craft, which terrorize the beachgoers. Carson's pendant flashes to life, and the image of Dr. Tambora gives him the skinny on the unknown threat. Jumping on his bike, Carson takes off for the beach with Dina in tow. Rydine materializes on the sand, and Carson jumps into the shimmer tube and is back at the helm of his Shogun warrior. Fending off blasts from the behemoth, Rydine grabs Dina, who joins Carson in the cockpit. The bulky carrier lifts out of the sea with jets, roughly forming the shape of a torso. The five ships then merge, forming the head of the robot monster. Dina says that this beast, with its many heads, is like the mythical monster Cerberus, but before she can espouse any more of Bullfinch's mythological work, Radine is blasted with a laser mounted on the robot's neck. Radine returns fire, fleeing his shield boomerang at Cerberus, knocking the head off its shoulders and back into the five component parts again. But that's a little setback, as the five ships merge once more in a different configuration, giving Cerberus a new head and new weapons for the Shogun Warrior to contend with. Next issue, round two in the battle between Raidine and the mysterious Cerberus, as well as tantalizing glimpses of the trouble abrew for our other characters in Cerberus and the Skyfall. Skyfall! Skyfall! Yeah, what 
she got on me that I don't got, huh? I'll be expecting my call, United Artists. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at some notes for the issue here. Um, page one is our splash page as usual, and it gets right to the point with a uh, scene showing riding tangling with the uh, the robot Cerberus. And it's very neat because it just shows the body of Cerberus flying in the air on his legs, and I put that in air quotes up to the microphone, which are basically just, he has jet engines that would end about mid-hip if they were legs. So he's just floating on the jet engine, shooting down at the ground, very neat. And we've got the five attack craft zooming around, riding as he blocks a laser blast with his shield. And we've got a little starburst that's spotlighting the mighty raiding against a shocking new menace called Cerberus. Nice splash page. I generally have liked the splash pages that Trimpy's done in this series, usually giving a good introduction to the story. Here, it's good to get a little action up front because pretty much all the action in this film is... Or action in the film. Action in this issue is backloaded, so it's nice to get a little fun splash page at top. Page two, as we uh, go to LAX, where Carson lands and is met by Dina, I mentioned last time out that we never got a good look at Dina's face, and that continues here. We see her from the back a couple of times. The one time that we see her facing forward, she's kind of in the background, so we don't get a good look at her face. It's not until page six of this comic that we get a good look at Trimpy drawing a face for Dina. I don't know if this was intentional or just accidental. There's no reveal on her face like she's, oh my god, she's hideous, or anything like that. No, she looks like a kind of standard Bronze Age Marvel female, as drawn by Herb Trimpey. So I, I don't know if it just worked out that way, the way the story was blocked out. Just kind of an odd thing I noticed. Probably wouldn't have noticed that if I wasn't reading this specifically for the point of doing it on the show. Uh, pages 3 through 5, we see Alongo Savage uh, going back with his crew in Madagascar, and we're introduced to the character of Judith. Is this a love interest for Alongo Savage? I don't know, so we're going to have to uh, keep our eyes peeled and see how that develops there. Uh, turning over to page 7, as uh, Genji Odashu lands her plane and is mobbed by the uh, press, she's rescued by Kosei. Love interest for Genji Odashu? I don't know. We're going to have to keep our eyes peeled and see how that develops. See what I did there? Turning over to page 14, as Carson and Dina are eating dinner, we get a flashback with Tambora explaining the way that the summoning pendants work. It's a reasonable enough explanation, considering that in the course of this series, we're already accepting the giant robots that they you know, know how to pilot fairly in intuitively. So it, it doesn't make any real shakes to me that they've got this magic device that can project the Shogun warriors wherever they need to be and let the pilots get to them. It does a good job of letting the pilots not all be in the same place just waiting for the monsters to attack. Kind of lets the action spread out a bit. So a, a nice development by Munch. I, I would imagine that having everybody simply have to be waiting at the Shogun Sanctuary would kind of pen you in with find as what stories you can tell. Whereas here, we get Carson's able to go out back into his life and then get summoned to fight the mad, bad guy. Not unlike you would imagine a superhero going about his or her daily routine and then, you know, I don't know, the wrecker shows up and we've got to change real quick and fight them. Uh, page 15, panels 1 through 3. We finally get a good shot of Dina's face as she dumps a glass of red wine on Carson's head uh, because she thinks he's uh, he's messing around telling her the story about raiding and the Shoguns. But we do get Trimpy finally getting a chance to draw Dina in a, a very nice 
full-on shot of her face. And like I said, she looks like your kind of typical Marvel 70s girl. You know, uh, not much of a nose, big lips, you know, uh, long kind of reddish hair as, uh, you know, red-orange hair is very common in the Bronze Age because good color separation for those colors. So, And um, it's, just, it's just nice to see another gal in the book besides Genji, you know, and, and she does look a bit different than Genji. One of the knocks, I think, sometimes on Marvel artists from this era is that the house style makes the women kind of look very similar. And they don't here. They really look, um, you can really tell them apart. They're, he does a good job with her clearly American features and Genji's uh, Asian features. Very nice. Page 15, later on that same page, panel 7, Bikini Girls! As we see uh, the carrier surface on, off the uh, shore on the beach line, Trimpy draws a couple Bikini Girls! And we all love Bikini Girls! Oh! Going over to page 19, we get the, uh, besides more bikini girls, we also get the uh, the carrier mode of Cerberus, and we see a little ramp coming up where the attack craft are launching out of. This is an interesting design, because it's kind of just a box with a rounded front on it, and then it's got some laser cannons sticking out the, front, uh, the, uh, the corners, the jet engines in the back, and a spiky dome looks almost like a robotic sea urchin out of the top. In all intents and purposes, looks kind of like an Xbox 360 if it was purple with guns on it. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. The other interesting thing is that it really calls back, to me, something that we would see from a 1970s Super Sentai show or a Super Robot show. I'm reminded specifically of the uh, the tokusatsu show Daitetsujin 17 just so is a big carrier that launched the little vehicles. That was very common in the 70s. And it wasn't until we got into the 80s, later 70s, early 80s, that we saw more of what I like to consider, what most people consider for Super Sentai and Super Robot, kind of the the Go Lion slash Voltron slash uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, where all the mecha were about the same size. So here, I mean, is that very much a throwback to this era, to the 70s? I really like it. It's a nice-looking design. The attack craft themselves are all very varied. One looks like a flying saucer. One looks like um, kind of a, almost like an Avengers Quinjet. One looks like a turbine with guns on all sides of it. Very nice different designs here. And, of course, Bikini Girls! Turning over to page uh, 23, uh, panel 3. Radine finally makes the scene as we're two-thirds of the way through the book being projected out of the uh, summoning pendant with the uh, shimmer tube to allow Carson to get in there. Also, it's a a very neat scene here where Carson does his best Johnny Blaze impression and drives his bike off the cliff and then jumps into the shimmer tube with the bike crashing through Radine's legs, assuming to hopefully not hit someone on the other side. And then he zooms up and is in his... uh, his uh, Shogun uniform. Very nice little sequence here. Turn over to page 26. We get to see a few more weapons from Raiden. First, using the, the shield buckler, which I really like. It's it's Panel 1 is a, a panel that essentially shows the scene from the splash page with Raiden parrying the shot from Cerberus's uh, laser cannons. Then he returns fire with his finger missiles, not unlike the Mechagodzilla. Nice touch. Unfortunate choice of sound effects is douche, 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 douche. But when they impact, we do get a very nice of scourge, S-K-O-R-Z-H. 
That's an interesting sound. But I, I love the sound effects, of course, and we get our um, you said, good use of Riding's weapons. Munch has, has you know, really done a good job, I think, so far in this series of not just having them be brawlers, but remembering the different weapons. I'm reminded of when in the, the letters page, they published portions of the series Bible where he explained all the different weapons that the different shoguns had. So I like to think of Mench referring to his notes and saying, oh yes, he's got figure missiles. Oh yes, he's got this. He's got that. I can use that. I don't know if that actually happened, but in my mind, it makes for a nice story. Yeah. Turning over to page 27, Dina says that the uh, as the five attack craft merge into a head, she said the... Uh, they're moving into some kind of formation, Richard. Stacking up, locking together, and snapping down into the main body's neck hole. They make it a head, Richard. Like the many heads of Cerberus. That's not how Cerberus works. Cerberus was a dog that had three heads. Not five little heads that would form into a different head. So, I think Dina, she might want to go back and reread, uh, you know, ninth grade English and uh, Edith Hamilton and Bullfinch and stuff like that, you know, and refresh on that because that's not how Cerberus works. Uh, I admit it's a cool name for a robot. No problem with that. Still, I think she missed that day. Uh, Panel 7 on that same page. Writing is hit really hard with the main gun from Cerberus's first uh, head formation. The sound effect is simply BOOM! So you know it's uh, powerful when they stick something that simple. I really love the coloring on here. Gafford does a real nice job. The panel goes almost all red and orange. We just see a little bit of blue from Rydine's uh, hand and some yellow on his, uh, his the crest on the side of his head. But otherwise, it's all these bright colors. So you can tell that's a real powerful shot that he gets blasted with. Very striking. I really like that. Uh, turning over to page 30, we get our cliffhanger, as, uh, as as is kind of been customary for this series, even when the last issue, when they defeated Maurikon, they had a bit of a cliffhanger, uh, as Cerberus forms a new head. This head looks kind of almost like the, I don't know, like a sun with something in front of it. It's a different uh, formation. You can see again that Trimpy was having fun with the different ways to combine these different geometric shapes to make different heads. Uh, I, I I like the issue, frankly. I thought it was a lot of fun. I liked getting some downtime for the characters in addition to getting some action at the end. Let's take a look at ads real quick. Uh, inside front cover, we get ads for Battlestar Galactica full-color T-shirts. I love them. I love them. They have one of my favorite ones, which is the... Uh, it was I think it was the poster... In maybe not in the U.S., but I think in Europe for the film, where we see the Cylons approaching, and we have the back of Starbuck and Apollo firing at them. It says Battlestar Galactica, and they got the the Viper flying overhead. Very neat. I, I like Battlestar Galactica, so I'm kind of a sucker for those. So uh, you know, always good to see. Let's see anything else. Oh, we get some. Uh, we get oh, invading the Micronauts, alien creatures with brains that glow in the dark. As we see uh, a print out here for Repto, Membros, and Antron, part of the World of the Micronauts line by Mego. No Micronauts. I don't think there's a Micronauts ad for the comic this time, but at least we got some toys. Oh, let's see. We get, uh, meanwhile, back at the bullpen page, which is interesting because um, we <laughs> we get Power Man and Iron Fist in here, which I thought was nice, doing a little dance almost, uh, you know, just with, with Roger Stern also getting his hair mussed up by Spider-Woman. And uh, we see um, Shang-Chi's foot at one point, which I thought was, was funny as well. Uh, very strange little page here. 
Uh, once more, we get an ad for Kryptonite Rocks because Superman just doesn't care. On the bullpen bulletins, there is a very, again, making sense with the connection of uh, from the, the back of the bullpen, there is a news article about Power Man and Iron Fist, so that's uh, fighting El Aguila, which is very nice. We also get a little bar about the Fantastic Four cartoon. And continuing the Luke Cage and Iron Fist, right towards the end, we get the full-page house ad for Power Man and Iron Fist. Uh, this was right around the time that Power Man and Iron Fist number 50 came out. So we get the house ad, which is the full cover of Power Man and Iron Fist number 50, a comic I really enjoy. Inside back cover, we get an ad for the Corgi Superman toys, because once again, Superman just don't care. These are the die-cast cars. We get a Daily Planet truck, uh, a van that has Superman on the side, a uh, City Metropolis police car, the Supermobile, and the Daily Planet helicopter. I, I like the uh, the Daily Planet helicopter. That's real nice. I don't have any Corgi diecast. I've got plenty of Hot Wheels and Matchbox, but no Corgi. I like this one. It looks These look pretty nice. I've, I've got to see if I can check these out at some point. Now, on the back cover, this was a nice ad. I like this one. A 23rd Century Odyssey Now Star Trek, the motion picture, coming this Christmas to a theater near you. Now, you folks may not know this, but the first podcast I ever did was actually a guest spot on Star Trek Monthly Monday, where uh, Chris and Scott talked about, excuse me, Star Trek The Motion Picture. This is my favorite Star Trek film, as it is, of course, Scott's favorite Star Trek film. And so when, back on the old Comic Geek Speak forums, when Scott and I had a conversation about this being my favorite Star Trek film, he asked me to be on the show. So that was my first experience podcasting. So you can go back uh, in the archives on TutureFreaks.com and take a listen to that one and see how far or not far, I've come as a podcaster if you really want to. Uh, overall for the issue, you know, the team is split up now. They're on their own. Action, though, I think stays at a good level. Is this a new status quo for the characters to be working individually? I haven't read ahead, so I don't know. Time will tell on that one. Taken as a whole, though, this issue is a good setup and the beginning of a good fight between Radine and Cerberus. Ironically, like I said, it makes it more like a normal super robot show in that sense, with the format of one heroic robot battling against one monster of the week. I, I would have, I liked the peek-ins with Alongo and Genji, but would have preferred less of that and more time to flesh out the fight. But it's solid. I mean, I, I, you can't take away too much, otherwise the subplots just become a one-page, and it's like, well, that's kind of a waste. Uh, there's a good cliffhanger. The series, like I said, has been pretty good about that. Next issue should be action-packed, I would imagine. All told, good issue, does a good job of setting up the table for the next run of stories, but doesn't lose the hook of the action, which has been, to me, kind of the crux of this series. And most licensed books tend to have a lot of action, and this one has not let down on that front. So, good book overall. Can't wait to see where this is going, and uh, you know, I guess we'll find out together next month. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> <clears throat> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil... You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. 
and I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? All right, we're back here on Art Destruction Directive. And in my hands, I have your emails to the show. But I do want to make one quick note. As I was recording this breaking news, according to the solicitations from DC Comics for April of 2014, uh, DC, under their legendary comics banner, will be releasing a hardcover original graphic novel tying in with the 2014 Godzilla film. Now, no word on whether this will be a prologue like the Tales of Year Zero hardcover was for Pacific Rim, or if it will be an adaption of the film. We don't have a lot of information right now, but I'm very excited by this, although this does kind of raise the question. By that point, you know, we'll have Godzilla comic being published by DC slash Legendary, and I think Rules of Earth will still be going on from IDW, so kind of raises the question. Godzilla, does the new Godzilla film not fall under Toho's license? Maybe Toho because it's licensed this one specifically to Legendary? I'm not sure how that works, but should be interesting for uh, see how that plays out. And the, the Pacific Rim hardcover was great, so really excited for this one. Now, Let's get on to the email. Our first email comes from the man who some say once dressed all in light blue to blend in and camouflage against the 1980s WWF ring. And the man who some say still wears it, despite the fact that they haven't used a blue ring in close to 20 years, but we know him better as Jack Dower. And Jack writes in, Oh, Henry Fortune, no comment. Jack writes, hey there, detective. First, I just went and saw The Hobbit on the IMAX in 3D. It was great, and Smog looks similar to a single-headed King Ghidorah, especially when he's covered in gold at one point. Uh, cool. I, I, 3D doesn't work for me. I've said this before in other shows. Because I wear bifocal glasses, the uh, 3D that they use in the theaters now doesn't work with my glasses. But cool that you saw it in IMAX. I mean, I really want to see it. I haven't had a chance to see Desolation of Smog yet. And he does look really cool in the in the trailer. So good on that. And making him look like King Gator, he could do a lot worse, that's for sure. Jack continues, There were many IMAX-worthy trailers, including Amazing Spider-Man 2, but only Godzilla got actual cheers from the audience. When he was looming over us on that huge screen, you could hear a pin drop. As soon as he roared the real Godzilla roar, the crowd went wild. I can't wait for this film. I am sure it's the most anticipated event of 2014, followed closely by Slipknot joining the Suicide Squad in the New 52. Jack, yeah, I mean, once that trailer dropped, I was, oh my gosh, I was like a pig in slop, but just so excited for this film. I'm going to have to really kind of force myself to avoid the hype for this film going forward until it's released. I, you know, just avoid spoilers and avoid seeing as, you know, see as little, I want to go in as clean slate as I can for this film. That's how excited I am for it. And unfortunately, one of the other news items to come out of the DC solicitations is that Suicide Squad's been canceled. So I don't think Slipknot's going to have a chance to get in there, unfortunately. Jack continues, second, you have convinced me to try the Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. Tim Curry as the voice of villain and the voice of Blue Falcon slash Space Ghost as the narrator, combined with, combined with Dai Kaiju? Who could ask for anything more? 
yeah, I mean, it's 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 a great fun show. It's not going to win any awards for its acting or its writing, but man, you want to talk about a show? Just get a bunch of guys together with a case of your favorite beverage and just have fun. Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad is it. Third, Torgo the Robot in the Twinkie commercial battling the blue-eyed Benjamin is from one of the greatest four-part stories Stan and Jack ever did. It's called The Thing Enslaved. The Skrulls kidnap Ben and put him on an alien world ruled by Skrulls patterned after old movie gangsters. Okay. The Fantastic Four get there before the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Although I love Kirk and Spock also. Okay. <laughs> it does sound kind of like a uh, Star Trek thing. Which is funny because on Star Trek Monthly Monday they just did Patterns of Force, which is the Space Nazis. Uh, Jack continues, he also appears in a Fantastic Four Galactus story Issues 170 through 175, I think. You get to see his home planet, clearly a precursor to Cybertron. Again, the four blaze the trail. That's, uh, I'll have to check that out. You know, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll bug Steven and Andy over at Fantastic Cast. They know more about the Fantastic Four than I do and check that out. And I want to say that doing some research, I think Torgo might have shown up in the Thing Solo title at some point. Maybe when, when he was doing the... Uh, the unlimited weight class wrestling. I want to say I, I read that somewhere, but I'm not sure. Still, you say Torgo to me, I'm always going to think of, I take care of the place while the master's away. Let's see, Jacket Teams. You asked what teams I would like to see do an Ultraman series and Godzilla series. Outside of the current IDW crop, although they are great. Please renew the license, guys, or I'll miss you. And unfortunately, it, Jack, it looks like after Rulers of Earth, that's going to be the end for IDW. But, you know, that series has already been extended out for issues beyond what it originally was, so we'll see what happens. Jack continues. Ultraman, writer, Jeff Johns, David Michelinie, and Marv Wolfman. All good choices there. Uh, Johns, though, I... Uh, I don't know. I, uh, John's this guy, I think he likes to stick more strictly to straight-up superheroes. I'm not sure how we do on somebody like Ultraman. Uh, but, uh, you know, you could probably make a lot of, make some hay out of the dual identity. David Michelinie would be a great choice. I love his work on Iron Man, along with Bob Layton. And uh, Marv Wolfman, now that would be, I, just, I can just imagine all the subplots going on with Marv Wolfman writing an Ultraman book. Artist, John Byrne, Bob Layton, Doug Mankey. Three great choices right across the board. Can't go wrong with any of them. They'd all look great handling the monsters, especially, I think, Byrne would be great and Mankey uh, handling all the crazy alien monsters. That would be good choices there. Godzilla, writer, Doug Bench. Well, yes, okay. Uh, Charles Soule and Jonathan Hickman. I'm not I'm not real familiar with, with Charles Soule. I know a lot of people like him. I don't think I've ever really read any of his stuff. Hickman, I think, would be a good choice because you could tell... Hickman seems to be really good at telling these long-form stories, and I think you could do a lot with some of the more um, legendary aspects of the character of Godzilla if Hickman was writing it, something that has a lot of weight to it. And Doug Mensch, of course, that's just classic Marvel Godzilla right there. Uh, he continues, artist Alex Ross, Scott Niles, George Perez, and Jose Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. A Ro an Alex Ross Godzilla series... That would look really good. All I can think of is, uh, I think it's uh, Bob Eggleton did the painted covers to the ID, second IDW series. I can imagine that on the interiors. That'd be a lot of fun. That'd be really nice. You know, Daikaiju always look so majestic when they're painted. Uh, George Perez, uh, he'd be perfect for like a Destroy All Monsters adaptation. I'd shove as many monsters as you can on the panel, right? <laughs> and uh, Jose Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, would be... Uh, 
his his style is so clean. I I would love to see how he would make all the other mo- all the Toho pantheon of monsters fit that that clean, almost minimalist style. That you know, uh, I think the word iconic gets thrown around a lot, but Garcia Lopez praise be his name, always looks iconic when he does his DC characters, so it would be a lot of fun to see him handle the uh, the monsters as well. Jack continues, Here are my questions. Okay, please open the case file on the Sandy Frank kerfluffle. What happened between him and Mystery Science Theater, and why is he so bitter? Um, okay, I, I did a little bit of research after talking about this on the last episode, and... Apparently, the animosity between Sandy Frank and the the crew at Best Brains was a bit overstated. Uh, you know, Sandy Frank's a guy out there trying to make trying to make money, and you know, I, I think his main issue, as as I've said before, was you know they were dragging his name through the mud as he was trying to promote uh, you know other import films and such to make money. But eventually, uh, you know, things just seemed to work out because, for whatever reason, they were able to release them. So um, I, I think it, it might have boiled down to it wasn't so much Sandy Frank didn't want them to release them as it was Dai and I think it's Katakawa is the name of the company that owns Dai now that didn't want to release them, the, the Gamera films. But my understanding is, and this is the same reason that Shout Factory was able to release all of the Gamera films stateside, is that Dai signed a license with a new company here in the States, which had no such problems with releasing the American versions of the films in order to, uh, and, and for the releasing the rights set is to say, for the Misty releases. So that is why we got it, is my understanding. So I hope that helps clear that up a little bit. Upshot of all this, we not only have our Gamera Misty box set, we also have the, the really cool uh, Gamera Collection DVDs from Shout Factory, which you can uh, get through Amazon using the Two True, uh, the Amazon.com link on TwoTrueFreaks.com. Uh, Jack continues. Also, did Godzilla ever get a Twinkie commercial? No, he did not. I don't think any of the licensed characters got Twinkie ads or Hostess ads. Uh, I, I mean, that would have been great. Yeah, how do you have a, a Hostess ad with the main character doesn't talk and is a you know 400 foot tall radioactive lizard? That'd be fantastic. Finally, can Marvel re-release their old Shogun Warriors series in Masterworks Essentials or digital format? Would they have a copyright problem even though they published these stories before? The short answer is no. They would not be able to release them, much like Essential Godzilla was released and then they had to rescind it and take it out of print, and then they've now they've gotten uh, a license from Toho to reprint that book once again. In order to do Shogun Warriors reprints they would have to do it like that they'd have to get permission of the three studios that owned the three robots that are used in that series and i don't know if that would happen so it seems unlikely that we'll get reprints of that i don't know that there's a tremendous amount of demand Uh, one of the advantages of the godzilla series is the huge name recognition of godzilla whereas the shogun warriors you know, I mean, nerds under know who they are, but I don't think the general public is going to care if we get an essential Shogun Warriors. They're not necessarily going to rush out and buy that. I got to say, at 20 issues plus that one follow-up issue in Fantastic Four, it'd be a perfect size for an Essentials volume. And in black and white, I bet you it'd still look pretty good. It, you know, Trimpy's art, I think, would, would look very nice in, in a black and white reproduction. So it would be cool, but unfortunately, don't see it happening. Uh, Jack continues, thanks for a great show. Keep stomping and stay safe out there, Jack Dower. P.S. Lieutenant Jack and I, if you're curious about the use of the dehydrated UN delegates, think Splenda. Ew.
And now I have to swear off Splenda in my unsweetened tea. Thank you so much, Jack. And I mean that seriously. Thank you very much for writing in. Always a pleasure to hear from you. Our next email comes from the illustrious Professor Allen. And Professor Allen writes in, Super duper cyber ninjas or whatever. Luke, I have joked more than once about the TV show with the most awesome name ever, Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad, or whatever it's called. As I was doing some Christmas shopping via the Two True Freaks Amazon link, of course, good job, Professor, my finger hovered over the purchase button for the show, but I just couldn't pull the trigger. I feel that your description and review of the episode is all the Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad I'll ever need. I'll stick with Ultraman. Thank you. Well, Professor, you know, like I said, it's it's a show that I think you have to be the right age and, and have some kind of nostalgia for the show to really appreciate it. I mean, growing up in, in that time period when, you know, Mighty Morphin Mania was going bananas, it just brings back all a flood of, of nostalgia for me every time I see it. And so uh, I wouldn't expect you to have the same... Uh, enthusiasm for it, but it's still worth watching. You should at least track down an episode or two on YouTube and give it a shot. Professor continues, I continue to be thoroughly entertained by your reviews and commentary on the Shogun Warriors comics, a great addition to the show. Sadly, I don't think this title is likely to appear in my LCS cheapy bins anytime soon, but I'll keep my eyes out for him. Keep him stomping. Professor Allen, host Corbin Podcast, co-host Shortbox Showcase, co-host the book guys show professor thank you very much for writing in i've never seen uh, an issue of the shogun warriors in a cheapy bin underneath a dollar i found the first issue i think for a dollar or maybe maybe yeah i think it was in a dollar bin at charlotte minicon last year uh, as the name implies it's a minicon in charlotte and uh, that but that the rest of the series i bought off ebay so you know, I don't think you're going to find it either. I have found the Godzilla series in cheapy bins. So maybe you could get some Marvel Godzilla on the quarter bin podcast. That would be a lot of fun. And uh, yes, as, as I said on another show, yes, we are definitely going to be covering Marvel Godzilla after we finish up with the Shoguns. And our next email is from Chris from New York and is entitled Love the Podcast. And Chris writes, Love the Podcast. Godzilla is a guilty pleasure from childhood. I live in Long Island, New York, and remember the Kung Fu movies on Channel 5 and Godzilla Gam and Gamera movies on Channel 11. Oh my God, yes, so do I. Back before Fox was a network, Channel 5 was WNYW, and it was a, a local station, and they used to show the Kung Fu movies, and WPIX Channel 11 would show the monster movies. And, oh my God, I remember, it brings back so many memories. I, I used to love that, you know? You could always count on those, and then you throw in... Now, in Long Island, you might not have gotten this, but Channel 9, WOR, used to show the Kung Fu movies on Sunday. That was their counter-programming to football, of all things. So uh, that was, oh man, bring back a ton of memories. That's great. Chris continues, just started listening about a month or two ago, and I'm up to episode 20. You already answered my question about covering Pacific Rim. Well, glad to be of service. Another movie that played when we were younger was a movie called Giant Robot, a giant silver samurai robot with a jetpack and finger missiles controlled by a young boy. That movie was actually cut together from a TV series called Johnny Sacco and His Flying Robot. Will you cover that series? 
and the Godzilla Power Hour from the 1970s. Keep stomping, and I'll be listening, Chris from New York. Chris, again, thank you so much for writing in. Uh, I, I want to cover Johnny Sacco and his flying robot in at least a broad sense. The series is available from Shout Factory, I'm pretty sure, on DVD. So it, it's out there now for consumption. Johnny Sacco, a classic tokusatsu show known as uh, Giant Robo in its uh, <laughs> original um, in original Japanese. And one of, uh, you know, just, just a, an, an icon of tokusatsu TV. And, and one of the very few tokusatsu robots. You know, we got more Kyodai heroes than robots. Him and Daitetsujin17, who, oddly, I mentioned earlier in the show, they always kind of go together uh, for me. I would love to cover Johnny Sacco. I'm pretty sure I've seen that edited movie that you're talking about. They did an edited together movie of Daitetsujin17 as well called Brain17 which is also something I hope to cover at some point. I know Brain17 is on YouTube. I'm not sure about uh, the, the giant robot uh, edited movie. Uh, the Godzilla Power from the 1970s, I've got it on DVD. I figure, why the heck not? At some point, I need to cover that show and uh, the late 90s Godzilla the series. I need to cover both of those shows on here. You know, maybe after I finish with Shogun Warriors and the Marvel Godzilla. Maybe I'll start picking up the shows instead of comics as an ongoing segment. What do you folks think? How would you like to see those covered? Do you want me to do just installments of them like we do with Ultraman, or would you like to see them as a recurring feature? Just give me some feedback. And if you want to send in feedback, go ahead and email me at uh, EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. And again, as I said in the last episode, you can now find Earth Destruction Directive on Facebook. Uh, just take a look for Earth Destruction Directive and you'll be able to find me. If you're in the Two True Freaks community, uh, you can usually find me in there as well. So uh, thank you everybody for writing in. I've got one more email, but I'm going to leave that one for next time. And uh, just want to thank everyone again for writing in. I love getting emails. You know me, I'm an email hack to podcasts. So if I can get emails to my podcast, that makes it all the more enjoyable. So it comes the time in the show where we have to ask that question and we have to ask every time, what are we covering next month? Well, we are going to be returning to a series we haven't covered in quite a while, and that's the Gamera series. And we're going to be taking a look at 1967's Gamera versus Gauss, featuring the debut of the most well-regarded and most popular of Gamera's foes, the bat-like vampire Sonic Boom Shrieking Thing Gauss. And uh, you can find this one on YouTube. You can get the DVD of it on a double feature with the film that comes after it, Gamera vs. Virus, uh, on DVD from Shout Factory. Looking forward to this one. I haven't done Gamera film in a while, so figure let's jump right back in with the friend of all children. So I hope everybody enjoyed the show. Come on back next time. Until then, keep them stomping. Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. 
If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, we will read them on the show. If you'd like to visit our forum, you can head over to www.forumforgeeks.com and come on down to the Two True Freaks section. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Anything you buy during your next Amazon session after clicking that link will help keep the lights on here at Two True Freaks. You can also find me on Twitter with the handle Eljacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.